Welcome to this brand new podcast series brought to you by The Race. This is Bring Back V10s, where we celebrate a classic era when Formula One was loud on the track and off it. We'll be looking back in depth at the races, personalities and storylines that defined the V10 era of F1, which we are classing from 1989 to 2005. We hope you enjoy taking these trips down memory lane with us for this new series, and we want to hear from you as well. Our season finale will be an entire podcast dedicated to the topics you want us to talk about. So make sure you get in touch with at We Are The Race on social media or send questions to ask at therace.com to get us talking about what you want to hear from the era that we're going to be focusing on. And let us know if you want us to break our own rules as well. For example, we'd be happy to bring back V8s if you'd like to hear stories from 2006 to 2013. Whatever it is you want to hear, we want to hear from you about it. We're going to crack on with our first episode now and proving the point that we are prepared to break our own rules, our first episode focuses on a team that ran V12 engines. But let's look past our own hypocrisy and start telling the tale of how Alain Prost ended up getting fired by Ferrari in 1991. I'm Glenn Freeman and joining me for our first episode, I'm delighted to welcome ex-Grand Prix racer and Sky Sports F1 pundit Karun Chandok. Hi again, nice to see you. And you, Karun, thanks for having us. Now, you're well known for being a fan of all things F1 history, so where does our V10 era of F1 rank for you? To me, this is the era that I grew up watching and fell in love with F1. Um, I suppose it was maybe a little bit before this. Uh, 87 was when the British Grand Prix was the first race I remember watching. Uh, but certainly, the early 90s were, were my favourite era of Formula 1. I think even today, looking back, Aesthetically, the most beautiful, iconic cars in many ways, that Marlboro McLaren, the, the Ferrari 640, the, the Williams 14B, you know. Yeah, the era I fell in love with F1, really. Yeah, I think that's the same for a lot of us, and that's why we've we focused on this area. And joining us as well is a voice that many podcast listeners will already be familiar with, but he's not in charge this time, and that's our F1 journalist, Ed Straw, now, Ed, you're a big fan of this era as well. Are you going to be able to control your podcast ego and not be in control of this episode? Well, I must admit, I was tempted just to try and commandeer the episode and, and send it off on a completely different tangent, but I, I will be good. And I'm quite enjoying being able to relax and luxuriate on the on this sofa while uh, while other people are talking and not have to, have to think about it. So, yeah, but it's, it's going to be great to talk about some of these stories. And, yeah, it is the right sort of time, late 80s, early 90s. I think, I think any time for anyone when you were getting into Formula One when you were younger... That's always kind of your zero point, isn't it? And you'll always have a special affinity with it, regardless of whether it's genuinely a great era or not. And I think lots of people listening to this will be in a similar kind of age band and so look back on that era in the same way because it was all kind of new and exciting, if you like, at at that time. And that's why it's just great to go back and revisit these stories because there's so many details that get lost in the the mists of time that it's good to revisit and actually understand things in a little bit more depth again yeah now you talk about depth there and this episode actually is a a two-parter basically because we did too much research so we'll put that right for the rest of the series now we all know that Prost got fired by Ferrari at the end of 91 just before the final race but we're going to trace back where the first cracks started to appear and try and work out exactly where this all went wrong now at the start of every episode of bring back v10s we'll ask our guests what are your initial thoughts or memories when you hear of the topic we're going to talk about? So Prost being fired by Ferrari, there's lots of flashpoints you can look back on, but what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I think just surprise uh, in some ways because in, you know, Prost was my hero. As, many, as 
much as most racing drivers, I think, around the planet would say that, you know, especially my generation would say that Senna was their hero. I, I was always a Prost fan. I was a, uh, I was a huge, huge fan of his, even in that 89-90 season battle. Uh, so to me, the first thing was surprise that my hero had been sacked. Uh, and secondly was, well, who am I going to follow at 92? Because, you know, all the top teams are filled or look like it was filled certainly at that time. So, yeah, that was my first first thought, really. It'll be the same as when you lost your HRT drive. People were going, Green's lost his drive. Well, it's seismic, massive impact. Uh, for me, I think the thing I always associate it with is, is the famous truck quote from Suzuka from Prost. It's always said he was sacked because he called the Ferrari a truck, which, of course, was not really what happened. And we'll get into that, that later. But just, yeah, Prost sacking, just that word truck is just out there in neon lights in my mind. Good attempt there by Ed to try and ruin the end of episode two at the start of episode one. But uh, we are going to start, actually, a year earlier, late 1990. Not with the Prost-Senna collision at Suzuka, although I'd imagine that will get its own episode at some point. But we're going back to Portugal 1990, because this is where we first saw any real cracks in the Prost-Ferrari relationship. And uh, it involves a gentleman by the name of Nigel Mansell, uh, who you may recall as well. Mansell and Prost were on the front row in Portugal, Mansell on pole. And Mansell messes up his start, veers across the track, swerves into Prost, who has to back out of it, and the McLarens go past both of them. Mansell ends up winning the race. Prost ends up third, I think, behind Senna. And Prost was absolutely furious about this and starts hitting out at the team, pointing out that by this point, Gerhard Berger in the second McLaren is doing everything he can to help Senna. So after the race, uh, Prost says, if Mansell has to win races, he has to do the tyre testing as well. In the week after Jerez, which was the next race, I won't be doing any tyre testing. Now, Mansell went to Ferrari in 89 as the number one driver, and he was given one of his 89 cars by Ferrari to accept Prost coming in with equal number one status. But bringing in two, you know, real alpha male top line drivers from that era, in a way, was that Ferrari's first mistake? I think there was a... There's a big difference between them as well you know, in terms of personality in terms of the 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 characters in and out of the car in many ways you know Mansell's a very dominating character a very dominating figure you, you speak to Damon about Magni Corps 1994 you know and Nigel came back in his cameo from IndyCar uh, to jump in the other Williams I remember Damon telling me he walked in the garage. You know, he's the guy fighting for the world championship. And the whole garage is just around Nigel, you know, all of the engineers. And, and it's just, and Damon's sort of going, excuse me, I'm the one in the championship battle here. Uh, and I think that's just the character Nigel, Nigel was. But then all of a sudden, you've got the reigning world champion, a guy who is a triple world champion by that stage, who does things a bit more under the radar. Um, you know, you, when you watch back the season reviews and you see the interviews from Mansell at the time, there's a lot of lines and complaints from him about Prost doing things, um, you know, which he didn't like internally uh, from a political standpoint. But all the great drivers, whether it's Mansell, Prost, Senna, PK, whoever, they build a team around them. And I think that's the problem that you've sort of alluded to, is they had two drivers there, both going about building the team around them in two very different ways. It was never really going to work out. 
particularly I think for a team like Ferrari that wasn't well equipped to to manage this, it had its own management problems and uh, and company culture. Maybe with a with a really firm leadership, you might be able to pull it off, but it was always it, it was always perhaps perhaps doomed. And, and you have to remember the context here, obviously. These two drivers, they're, they're two of the four big beasts of that era, the others being PK and, and Senna. Any combination of those is going to be tricky, inevitably. But then, of course, you have the problem of a character like Mansell who really wants the team to, to be behind him, not, not purely from a practical perspective, but kind of from an emotional perspective. And then if there is anything he perceives as being a negative, it gets multiplied, shall we say. And that appears to have played something of a part in what happened at the start of Estoril because they had, as Steve Nichols has talked about, them having this launch control or launch system that Prost had spent a load of time studying. And there's also talk about having a long first gear and a short second gear to try and keep with the, the or keep ahead of the, the McLarens as it was because they had the, the front row. And Mansell wasn't using that system, Prost was. And then you have this moment basically with Mansell sort of veering across the track towards Prost. And I think actually it was Mansell just lighting it up a bit too much and I don't think it was a deliberate thing but you can kind of see that as partly influenced by Mansell's maybe paranoia to an extent but also we have to remember Mansell had retired by then hadn't he so it was inevitable the team was going to was going to build up around around Prost so yeah I think you can say there was a certain degree of inevitability about this but I don't think it's it's necessarily fundamentally a fault of the drivers. It's almost more the, the wider environment. And I think also when you watch back that season, in the early part of the year, until they got to Mexico, Mansell arguably had the legs on Prost. He was he was often the one ahead in the races and and ahead in qualifying, but had more reliability issues. And then it seemed like in the warm up on on Sunday morning in Mexico, Prost flicked a switch, managed to unlock. This this key setup or potential that he needed in the car, and from then on, he he was certainly the man to beat in that Ferrari lineup. Took that hat trick of wins in the middle of the season. So, um, and and that coincided with Nigel having unreliability and bad luck. So, yeah, it, it, it was a, it, as Ed said. You've got two top line drivers in there, both trying to be the alpha. The only way it could happen is if you had such a strong leader up at the top. You know, you can argue a Patrick Head, Frank Williams combination, or maybe even a Ron Dennis, um, you know, as a single point leader could have managed it. And I'm sure we'll touch upon the Ferrari management thing because, you know, that, again, was a bit of a revolving door at that time. Yeah, become it does become a bit of a mess. Now, a few years ago, Prost released a book, actually, I think in conjunction with McLaren, and it's very good. I mean, we've not been asked to promote it, but we've used it for our research, and I'd recommend that anyone who hasn't seeing it goes and takes a look at it. And he says that after Portugal, he felt he needed to basically let rip at Ferrari's management to kind of shock them into into action. And the quote he gave at the time was, Ferrari does not deserve to be world champion. It's a team without directive and without strategy against a team well-structured like McLaren, which I think, Karun, is some of what you're getting at there. McLaren had a very clear leadership at the time. Ron Dennis is the boss. He's calling the shots. And everything underneath him was well-structured Already, whereas you know at Ferrari, it's clear that that wasn't the case in quite the same way. But but this worked for Prost because uh, Mansell did follow him home second at Jerez and played the team game. And I think actually in in Mansell's book, there's a quote from Cesare Fiorio, who was in charge of Ferrari at the time, saying the problem with Portugal was that Mansell was under instruction to let Prost win the race if they were one two. 
But if they're one three, what what can Nigel do? Yeah, and actually, it's funny, isn't it? Because you you look at modern day Formula One that you know all of us watch and are involved with, and it's so much of a weekend is spent talking about strategy and undercuts and all this sort of stuff. And actually, you know, while the start was the big thing that that sticks out of that race in Portugal, you have to remember that McLaren's got ahead, but Prost was third, and Mansell, you know, Mansell ran wide, and Prost ended up third, and Mansell was running fourth. But actually, it was through the cycle of pit stops that he effectively undercut his way <laughs> back into the lead. So even from, um, you know, at that time, strategy and strategic decisions weren't as scientific or as complex um, and as talked about as they are today. But effectively, Ferrari gave their number two the better strategy as well, <laughs> apart from, you know, the, the start, which um, I'm sure for a cerebral driver like Prost, that, that wasn't missed. I think actually there's an interesting revolving doors moment with that race at Estoril. It isn't just the start, but if you remember, that race was shortened because there was a red flag. Caffey crashed after clashing with Guri Suzuki, I think. And at that point, Prost was bearing down on Senna and probably would have passed him. And then that would have created a situation where Mansell would, well, he would have had to and presumably would have done. And then suddenly that puts a whole completely different complexion. I think when, I think that was, that was probably what doubled the frustration for Prost because it might well have played out that way. And to be fair to Mansell in this case, given that he did play the game in Harath next time out, who's to say he wouldn't have done that at Esther? He, he may very, very well have done because certainly Prost, I think, he had, uh, he had almost 10 laps, I think, to get past Senna. So that could have changed things massively as well as in terms of the whole points situation uh, in that season. So maybe maybe just with a little bit of, of luck, if Alex Caffey and Aguri Suzuki hadn't intervened, things might have gone fractionally differently. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's funny how these big storylines can turn on such a small moment. Now, after the Jerez win... Prost does say in public, he says, uh, I've come to see that quite often the best way to get something done is to make your dissatisfaction public. Now, that is a recipe for disaster when you're at Ferrari, I would say. But reflecting on 1990, obviously a championship, he does end up losing to Senna when he gets taken out at Suzuka. Uh, In his book, Prost says, it was really a shame that we did not win the championship in 90. In my view, we lost it because of Nigel and the politics put together. And then obviously with Ayrton at Suzuka. We should have won this championship, and I'm very disappointed because I feel that I did a fantastic job. Now, Corinne, you mentioned Prost kind of getting the upper hand on Mansell through the middle of 1990, and there's that famous story from Silverstone where Nigel tells the story um, of the chassis being swapped. So Prost ends up in Nigel's car, and they switch the chassis plates or something, and the mechanics are denying it to Nigel. Nigel eventually finds out and then claims that he then took pole at Silverstone in Prost's car, and uh, that was really that was the big undoing of of the relationship, I think. But there's also a story from the start of the year. So we were talking about how Ferrari had to manage the drivers early on, and Fiorio said that they worked really well together. I think in Phoenix at the first race, and then in Brazil for race two, they worked together through the weekend. And then Prost made a load of changes to his car on the grid and didn't tell Nigel. And from that moment, Nigel lost the trust, and the relationship was an absolute nightmare, basically. Um, but I think we talked before about Prost having that methodical approach to weekends as well. And it was the same in testing. Mansell, and I think, Corinne, you've probably got friends at Williams who would confirm this as well. Mansell would love at the end of a day of testing to stick a set of qualifying tyres on, go out and bang in a lap time. And Prost's engineers would say to him, 
you've got to do the same because now the team will see reports that Mansell's gone really quick and you've got to do it. And Prost hated that sort of thing. It's just not how he was wired up at all. And it's just a great example of how different those two characters were that even on a test day, Nigel Mansell wants to be two seconds under the lap record. Yeah, and that's that's what I was saying, you know, at the top. Prost spent his entire season, and when I say season, I mean not just race weekends, but everything in between, thinking about the Sundays. You know, think back to that race in Mexico I, I referred to there. You know, he qualified 13th and just worked on the race setup and chipped away and chipped away and came through to, to win the race. You know, he passed, I think he passed Mansell on track as well on, on his way to victory in that race. So that, that was just his way. And I think in some ways, that's why he doesn't have the fan base necessarily that, that you know, the showman. The like lack a, of flamboyance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, you look at... When you watch Mansell, it's a bit like watching Max Verstappen or Lewis today, isn't it? They never just have a, a, a race where they spend two hours driving around and around. There's always some form of drama or controversy. Or there's just, something's happening. Um, and with Senna, you know, you, he had this unbelievable speed on a Saturday. He qualified at the front and he'd go off and win. Whereas with Prost, there was this weird perception that well, he's not. He can't be that fast because he doesn't qualify up there. And but actually, it was just his philosophy and his approach that the points come on Sunday. Yeah. Now, Ed, before we move on away from Nigel Mansell, because this episode is not supposed to be about him, but he's hijacking it so far. Could we say that, in some ways, this was all Nigel Mansell's fault? Is he the reason that Prost and Ferrari ultimately fell out? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't. I don't think we can blame Mansell particularly for it. Just, just don't even what happened in 1990, let alone uh, what went went on to happen. I think if you want to be critical of Mansell, you would probably say he was slightly less effective at working with the team to get it behind him. I think he expected the team to be behind him. Prost, perhaps because he came in, obviously in 19 months, had already been there for a season, knew he had to work at it. There's a great quote I stumbled across, uh, which, which followed in, in, a, in a piece somebody did at the time. There was some Mansell quotes saying about how wrong it was and how happy he was to be going to Williams and Prost there was a kind of counter quote where he said well yeah Nigel says that but he was on the golf course on Saturday afternoon I'd love to be doing that but I was thinking about the Sunday so Prost's sort of position is well I was working to make this happen Mansell's position is I should have had this because I'd I'd achieved it so you've basically got two very different perspectives there both from drivers who've had problems in the past Mansell had PK at Williams that wasn't managed perfectly, so you understand why there's that in the back of the mind. Prost with Senna at McLaren, even with Arnu, which he came out on top of back in the day at, at Renault. So you've got these two sort of storied, established drivers with reasons to think they're number one, and they're, they're struggling a bit. And obviously, Ferrari knew they had to convince Mansell on this because of the way they had to get him to accept Prost. And so Ferrari should have been a bit more across this as well in, in leadership, and as Karine said, strong company culture is needed to, to do that. So... No, it's it's not in the slightest bit Mansell's fault. And actually, if you look at it, he was quick during the season. He was incredibly unlucky. You can see why he maybe felt he was getting the second best bits because he had more reliability problems, although they both had more than their fair share of problems. So yeah, it's it's just one of those uh, one of those situations where you've got two drivers. Whatever happens, they can't both achieve what they want to do. They both want to be the number one. They both want to win the the world championship. That that one of those one of those things can happen for neither, but. One of them is going to be the number one, and it, and it just was Prost. There's one more thing that, that happened in 1990 that's probably relevant to all of this story. And we know that a lot of the tension between Prost and Ferrari was initially between Prost and Fiorio. Now, it's emerged years later 
that Fiorio approached Ayrton Senna during the middle of 1990. And he's written a book about this, but he, he shared a letter of intent that he sent Senna to a, a Greek website called GoCar. So Google that and you'll see a really interesting document. But the letter is dated July 1990. And obviously it's an intent to make an offer to Senna in the future. But surely, Karun, if, if Prost got wind of that, given that part of the reason he went to Ferrari was to get away from Senna, and we know there were problems in the future when Senna tried to get into Williams while Prost was already there, you know, that's a, again, that's a big red mark if you're trying to build this team around Prost. Is it just a team getting sucked in by the, the allure of possibly signing Senna as well? Well, clearly, you know, if, if, if that was the case, what we don't know in that part is, you know, Anybody can write a letter of intent. I could write a letter of intent to Lewis Hamilton to say, you know, he's going to come and ride a bicycle race for my team or something. It doesn't mean anything. Um, I, I think that the reality is that, you know, clearly Pross was in this big championship fight against Senna. Um, and Senna had the full backing of the team and his teammate, whereas Pross didn't feel like he did until they got to quite late in the season, really, Jerez, which is the last three races. So that's that's where the cracks appeared. But on the whole, though, I don't think 1990 was so bad. You know, I've spoken to Alan about, you know, privately about the season, and actually says, you know, the car was good. It, it was more competitive than they were in 89. The fact that I was fighting for the championship was much better than Ferrari were in 89. You know, you won a bunch of races and... And he actually quite enjoyed um, a lot of that season, I think. The the real problem started to come in 91. (laughs) Yeah, well, let's move on to 91, because this is where it does all go wrong. And it was already known going into pre-season that Ferrari would be introducing a new car mid-season, which we know did happen. But they actually caught a lot of the people at the time on the hop by bringing a, a part new car for the start of testing. It was the 642, so the new chassis designation. It was basically the 1990 car with a new rear end, so engine cover, side pods. I think the rear wing was different as well. And it is, if you compare the images of the two, there are noticeable differences behind the driver, but it's the same really at the front. And this was Steve Nichols coming in as, as a designer and taking over a, a concept that had been evolved from Enrique Scalabroni and, and John Barnard before that, and I think he just managed to get some bits on it early, really, before doing the 643. But throughout testing, Ferrari are very regularly quickest. Um, McLaren, that sounds familiar, isn't it, from last yes, year? Yes, <laughs> yes. Haunting memories of 2019. McLaren were waiting on the introduction of a new V12 engine. Um, but you also had Benetton delaying their new car. And Williams had a semi-automatic gearbox they were developing. So there was a bit of a feeling developing that Ferrari were the only team evolving an already strong car and the rivals were going to struggle and then in March so it's before the season starts but pre-season's going well Ferrari announces that Prost and Lacey have re-signed for 92 so at this point you're thinking well how could anything possibly go wrong here and Prost has talked about this in his book where he says he made that decision in December uh, but he does admit he says it was not one of my better decisions although it seemed right at the time as you said, Karun, he puts, I had a good year in 90 and it was good fun. I won five races and I was able to fight for the championship. We all worked well together and the ambience was good. So at this point, it would feel that, like you said, those little things that happened at the end of 1990 weren't real problems. That was just 
the heat of battle. And Mantle are gone now. You know, yeah, he, he got he got a lazy in as um, almost a, an understudy, really, as mm. another you know French understudy to him. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think there were lots of ingredients that told him why not. And I think as we move towards the ninety start of the ninety one season, there were some circumstances that I think allowed Ferrari to get a little bit suckered in. Obviously, as you mentioned, Williams and, and McLaren were both either delayed or do, doing other things. I, I think because there'd been so much talk about the Honda V12, the new engine they'd switched to and the problems, there'd been some Honda engine failures in testing, basically because Honda was running them to destruction. So it was very easy to kind of shrug shrug them off. But I think you had a Ferrari assuming that they were going to build on the previous year's progress at the same time as we were actually just starting to see a bit of a step change. Because remember, in, in 91, McLaren won the championship, but the Williams was the strongest car with the... Uh, the, the semi-automatic gearbox there. Obviously, they're working on the active ride program that was going to make the FW14B so formidable, and you had Adrian Newey's aero, and that there were big changes going on. And and I think there was just a feel that almost evolution would be enough, whereas they needed to take take bigger steps. So perhaps it was a, in a way, it was kind of a function of how well ninety went that that they were a little bit over optimistic coming into nineteen ninety one. Although Prost stresses that he wasn't suckered in too much by it he, he felt there were there were still still concerns but obviously there's discontinuity of technical personnel as well on reduce around the aerodynamicists had gone to to mclaren and we should remember the 1990 ferrari had more downforce it was a stronger car aero wise the mclaren still a decent car on that front but it had more power and that was an area where ferrari was struggling with and the drivability the engine in particular so you end up with a situation where mclaren are working on their aero game with duran coming in Ferrari perhaps scrabbling around. Steve Nichols was changing things. They had Jean-Claude Migio come in from Tyrrell. Obviously, Tyrrell the previous year had been mega. So there's this little pendulum swinging away from Ferrari. And I feel that with what we'll talk about, where they got to technically, they were scrambling around a little bit and just things weren't quite as simple as just put one step in front of the other and you'll, you'll, keep, you'll keep climbing. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Durand there, actually, because there's a story about him that he got so fed up working with Scalabroni that that's why he left Ferrari. But nobody told him at Ferrari that Scalabroni was on his way out as well. And, he, and I think he would have happily stayed if that was the case. But that's probably a sign of how dysfunctional Ferrari was at that time. I mean, I don't know if you've read John Barnard's book or the book about John Barnard, The Perfect Car, but... It's extraordinary the stories that are in there about just the internal politics and the the infighting at Ferrari. I mean, you know, you're talking about one engineer not getting along with another. Um, this, I can't remember which year it was. I think it was 87 or 88. Um, Barnard tells a story of how Ferrari had the Italian engineers designing a whole other car and had it in the wind tunnel to compete against his car that was being designed in the UK in Guildford. I mean, you know, that it's just unbelievable the scale of the, the dysfunctionality really in there. Yeah, it's crazy. Now, Ed, you mentioned Honda with the V12. They were blowing up and Senna was actually critical in public saying the car wasn't very powerful. And uh, he'd done a test, I think, at Estoril. And his complaints prompted Honda to put out a statement having to remind him that the engine was in Phoenix spec. So it was slightly detuned to what they would run at Estoril. So there's a bit of dysfunction there. Uh, And talking about the aero battle between McLaren and Ferrari, when the MP4-6 comes out, the new McLaren, one of Senna's comments is, 
I can't drive a Ferrari, so I got McLaren to build me one. So they were clearly trying to make up for where they felt they were deficient in, in 1990. But going into the season, all the media, including Autosport magazine, were saying that you know Ferrari are clear favourites. And uh, there's a poll of journalists where there were nine journalists, four picked uh, Prost as champion, four picked Senna, one picked PK for some reason. Uh, don't know who that was. But going into the season, as you said, Ed, Prost didn't share the confidence that Ferrari had. I think Ferrari got ahead of themselves and thought, we'll just evolve from where we were and we're going to stay at the front. And quickly it emerges that isn't the case. Senna wins in Phoenix. And before we even get to Brazil in round two, there's talk that Ferrari can have a massive upgrade package for Imola, maybe trying to sell a few more tickets. Uh, And there's already questions about the 642 chassis. And as we said, it's been evolved really from the 89 car onwards. There's a, there's a commonality in the in the appearance of it. And now the feeling is all of a sudden that instead of Ferrari having an advantage because they've evolved from a solid base, that actually, as you said, Ed, they might be falling behind because an 89-90 concept is now outdated. But this just shows how you can't just... You know, it's still a people business. You can't just look at something and evolve it without understanding the thought process and the philosophy. You know, the original 89 car was a John Barnard car. Now, he'd gone off to Benetton by this stage. And then, you know, Durand has come and gone and Calabroni is, is there. And, you know, there's, they're all trying to evolve this concept. But actually, the original thought process, that guy's long gone. Um, and in some ways, I think you've raised a really good point about this evolutionary process. And in some ways, maybe the underestimated how hard it is to just evolve a concept without knowing, you know, where where to really um, or which areas to really develop. Now, Ed, we obviously know that Ferrari would get his act together in years to come when Jean Todt came in and really shook the place up. Do you think? What we're talking about already, the level of dysfunction that Karun and I have described there, is this just a sign of just how much Ferrari needed someone like Todd to come in in the future and really sort the place out? Yes. You have to remember, of course, that Enzo Ferrari only died in 1988. So there was kind of this element of the race team trying to kind of find it itself again. And it still had some of the old the old traits. It wasn't a non-political team when Enzo was there. He always used to have his selected lieutenants who he'd, he'd listen to, and that's where he get all his information from. But it was kind of a team that didn't... The circumstances weren't there almost for it to have strong leadership. And obviously Fiat had overall dominion of it, and they kind of left it to Enzo mostly. But then they were starting to get involved a little bit, so there's this extra political player. And, and I think you just end up with a with a Ferrari team that is just not set up to manage its drivers properly. It's not set up to create continuity and good direction technically. There were clearly lots of good ideas on the car, but it, it, it was just all over the place. And, you know, we talked about all these names who were involved in it. And so, some of those who'd made the 90 car so good were no longer there. And you just kind of think, well, that's not a great condition to to actually to actually build on. And, and at this point where actually Formula 1 is being completely changed by ultimately Williams is the one that really sets sets the path on this and the Williams was the fastest car of, of 91 they're just changing the game completely and it's strange because in 1990 Ferrari was sort of with it because it had a really strong car aero wise and you feel if they could have built upon that they they could have been ahead of the ahead of the game but but um, somewhere and I think it 
primarily it is because of that that wider company culture and the, the leadership just not being right and you'll never have good leadership when those in the leadership are having to worry about their position politically etc you just end up with this kind of cacophony and you know if you look through the 80s and in the early 90s that season 1990 is the exception that's the strongest season they never fought for a championship after Schecter's in 79 in terms of the, the driver's championship properly anyway they did win a constructors but it's tempting to look at 90 as the norm and then 91 as a slump but actually 90 was sort of the, the exception and 91 was actually just a slightly worse version of where they were in, in 89. So this this is absolutely, it's like this this sort of interregnum between the Enzo Ferrari years, which weren't exactly going brilliantly, and when John Tott came in, was it French Grand Prix in 93, to, to get things un, under control. So is it any wonder everything went wrong? And it's, it's all about, so I saw an interview with Gerhard Berger where he said that with Ferrari, everything's drama. This is him talking in his McLaren days. So you take that, it's just a combustible combination that's always going to lead to a, to a massive, massive mess, really, wasn't it? And, uh, yeah, so perhaps we shouldn't expect, have expected 91 to have progressed so smoothly. That's a very well-timed Gerhard Berger reference because Prost says something similar. Um, we get to Imola and there's a load of updates that appear to have been rushed out. So there's new front wing end plates, new side pods, new airbox, revised under tray. Prost is, you know, happy again. But Imola, of course, is a race where he famously spins off on the warm-up lap in the rain, can't rejoin, and it's again, it's another crisis. But Prost said something very similar to the burger comments you mentioned there. In the French media, he says, internal crisis is a normal thing at Ferrari. When the team wins, it's a crisis of optimism. When that happens, everything stops. That's what happened in the off-season. The problem is that there are one or two people in the team with little F1 experience. Ron Dennis is a leader of men, a catalyzer of energies. Ron would like that phrase, wouldn't he? Uh, he's completely respected, and that's what we're missing here. And results don't get any better in the races that follow, really. The 643 car is still waiting to be introduced. And in May, Fiorio is booted out, and he's replaced by a group of people, which is probably the ultimate disastrous move you could make, which is Piero Ferrari, Claudio Lombardi, and Marco Piccinini come in. And Prost says in his book, um, in October 1990, I already knew that 91 would be a disaster, which kind of goes against what he said earlier when he re-signed his contract. Uh, And he says it was a nightmare, not because it was the first year I didn't win a race, but because of politics. Uh, I don't want to go into all the stories about why they fired Fiorio, but they said it was because of me. And I still don't know exactly why that happened. It's pretty well known, Karun, that Prost, and Fiorio never really got on. And as we'll find out later on, he does end up criticising him later in the year. So is this just Prost trying to be the diplomat? Yeah, I think so. And I think I'm always a little bit nervous about quotes that have been quoted in different languages and then things get so translated. <laughs> yeah, things get translated. You know, we see it even today, really, all the time. So uh, always a little bit, bit nervous about that. But the reality is that you know, I think Ferrari pushed the development of the 90 car all the way to the end. They were in their championship battle. That compromised 91, perhaps, a little bit. You know, we've already talked about how they did an evolution, whereas Williams is, you know, the FW14 is a big change compared to the 1990 car. Um, you know, the, the new Honda V12, big step for them. Benetton's new car came in in Monte Carlo, I think. They introduced a new car. So, you know, they, they had... And that was the high nose car, wasn't it? So again, exactly. a step change, like Ed yeah. mentioned. 
Yeah, you know, a decent step change. I think that's the first Barnard Benetton, wasn't it? That really came out in, in round four. So, you know, the, the other three teams pushed the pushed the boat. And actually, w- when you look at the gap, perhaps early on uh, between F- uh, McLaren and Ferrari, it wasn't too bad. It's just that now Williams had raised their game, and that I think in turn pushed McLaren to change their reference. You know, McLaren suddenly were not looking at the three tenths they had over Ferrari. They're thinking, you know, we get to Mexico and Mansell and Patrese are one, two on the grid. So all of a sudden McLaren are going, oh, hang on a second. This championship battle is, is not actually with Prost, it's with those guys. <laughs> so, they, you know, they've had to lift their game now. And, and Ferrari just weren't able to react. Uh, you know, it took till Magni which was what, round six or seven before the, the new car came. Um, so I think that the frame of the, the reference changed for those top three teams. Williams were back to being championship contenders, which they hadn't been since 87. Um, and, and, you know, Ferrari weren't quick enough to react. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, we had Canada and Mexico in sort of the middle of the season before we get back to Europe and Prost retired from both of those races. And we get to the end of June and there's a big test at Silverstone and the Ferrari, the 643, the new car, is expected to turn up there, but it doesn't make it. And it's finally launched at the start of July. Now, this is where we mentioned that Ferrari kind of redesigned this car in two halves in that they did the back end at the start of the year and then the front end. And Nichols confirmed that at the time. He said the car is basically the 642 from behind the driver. But there are obvious big changes at the front. And Ferrari were trying to catch up here, weren't they, Ed? Because... The car looked good, and they, this is where they started to experiment with the raised chassis at the front, which was starting to come in. The car does look you know, narrower and leaner at the front. So when the car finally launched, the initial images suggested, okay, it looks like they have got a hang of kind of the aero revolution, and they probably are back on a par with everybody. Yeah, it's one of those things that looked like a, a step in the right direction, but obviously nothing had really changed behind the scenes. And I still get the impression there wasn't really a... A clear, it all seemed a little bit modular their approach to it and you mentioned the way they did it that was forced by necessity but it's like they didn't have a really deep-rooted understanding of what they were trying to do because it's interesting so if you look back at the pace the Ferrari was actually very quick the sort of the interim car if you want to call it the, the uh, 6422 as it was called because that was their their second strongest performance on pace of the, of the season it actually wasn't very, it was very close to to their peak so they kind of got the car working there but then it slumped back to where it was before so I'm, I'm not convinced there was a clear understanding and I think this comes back to that whole thing of the, the technical concept doesn't it did they have a real command over what why things were working why things weren't working because you can to an extent fluke into something that works but if you don't entirely understand it sometimes you you get thrown and and with the fact that there was this huge change going on in terms of performance it wasn't that the, that the 91 Ferrari was a massive step back from 90 or anything it just wasn't enough of a, a step forward yeah i mean it's a good point you make about the pace because you know early on in the season first race cross qualifies a 10th off center at phoenix and a track that he hated um san marino is only three tenths off i think um canada was only three tenths off so you know canada but that's what i was saying before he was three tenths off center but the two williamses were one two on the grid so actually you know, and then once the six four three has come, yeah, they were mega in France, but for the rest of the year, they were sort of similar to where they were in the first half of the year as well. It's just, I, I agree with Ed. It seems like the approach they had done to this, uh, to this 
development plan or the introduction plan of the two two different types of cars didn't really work out for them you know as a, philosophically yeah you mentioned france there the the debut of the new car and prost leads 44 laps in that race over a, a couple of different portions in the lead of the race and he loses it he maybe gets overtaken by mansell and then gets it back in the pit stop something like that but he finishes second and i think everyone's pretty happy with that as a, as a debut you know prost says the car wasn't ideally set up but it's a brand new car. Uh, pro- the, the phrase Prost used, he said, this car is a week old. So to have that level of performance is super. And at that point, though, you're thinking, right, this is the definitive 91 car. He's just fought Mansell for victory. We're going to wrap this first part of the episode up shortly. But at this point, you can understand why people would now be thinking, right, Ferrari have got the right car. They're back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that... That was where Mansell and Williams were about to hit their purple patch in the championship battle. You know, Senna, just to recap, because I think we, we have, we sort of skipped over how the season unfolded, I guess, a little bit. But, you know, just for those who don't remember, Senna won the first four races. Mansell scored no points till they got to round four at Monaco, finished second there. So by that stage, you know, Senna's got 40 points. He's miles ahead. Mansell's got six. Prost is miles behind as well. And it's, we're all looking at it going, Senna's just going to blitz his championship. It's going to be done by the summer, you know, by August. But then Williams start to, to unleash their full potential. Mexico, Canada, and the Renault engine takes a big step forward as well. So, yeah, when we get to France and we see that performance where not only was, was Prost challenging Mansell, but they were quicker than McLaren, you know, the current championship leaders in drivers and constructors so you're thinking hang on a second they're quicker than the championship leaders this is game on from from here on in i do wonder if because obviously this manny core is his first grand prix famously smooth circuit there they did have trouble over the season with the uh, with the shock absorbers and understanding them etc so i do wonder if that kind of got a car into a sweet spot where they could understand it and make it work properly because it was just a little bit more straightforward you did you did at that time you used to see if you nailed Manny Corps, sometimes we did see people overachieving. Ligier were the famous ones. Obviously, they tested them. I mean, 93, I think they locked out the third row there with a good car. But, you know, just having the car right for there would, would, would help a bit. So I think perhaps this feeds into the same thing, that, that Prost quote you said about kind of when things start to go a bit, a bit. Well, everything's brilliant. So I think almost a team constantly thinking they've done this massive turn of a corner rather than just sort of grinding away keep improving, keep understanding, and then and then you'll get there, which is, I think, one of Prost's complaints about the whole culture of the team, which I imagine we'll get to later. Yeah, well, as the title of this episode suggests, uh, this isn't the beginning of a Ferrari revival. So uh, in our next episode, we'll be looking at how it really went so wrong from this apparent high point when it looked like everything was going back in the right direction. So make sure you join us for episode two, where we'll revisit the messy conclusion of this saga But thanks very much for joining us for episode one of Bring Back V10s. Ed and Karun, thank you for helping us kick this off. And you're both coming back for episode two because, you know, you guys are tuned into this story now. So it wouldn't make any sense to boot you out just yet. Listeners, please don't forget to find us at We Are The Race on social media and let us know what you think about this series. And remember to tell us what you want us to talk about in the series finale. Anything you like from 1989 to 2005 F1. 
But for now, we're going to pause it there and we'll be back for episode two to get to the conclusion of Alan Prost and Ferrari. And we'll see you then. 